Hello, everyone, and welcome to CRU's sustainability podcast, The Big Questions. My name is Jamana Salihin. I'm Chief Economist and Head of Sustainability at CRU, and I will be your host. Today, we are set to cover the biggest issues, and there is none bigger than sustainability. This is the first in a series of podcasts around COP26, where we will cover topics as diverse as electric vehicles, recycling, hydrogen and carbon emissions. We are going to get into the nuts and bolts of whether the next two weeks at COP will be remembered as a success or a failure. Joining me today, Sarah McNaughton and Frank Eich, who work with me in sustainability, and Wan Ling, Head of China Analysis from Beijing. So let's kick off. I want to start with a reminder of the four COP goals around we, today we will frame our discussion. One, collaboration across countries to combat climate change. Two, mitigation, including policies to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Three, the role of finance as a driver to net zero. And four, adaptation on changes in climate that are already underway. So, Sarah, the UN um, released a report, the 2021 Emissions Gap Report, on the earlier this week, saying that we are on the path close to 2.7 degrees Celsius. What is CRU's view? Thanks, Jimena. Um, our base case is, is very similar to the UN Emissions Gap Report. And, and that's because, you know, taking a step back, globally, almost 50 billion tonnes of greenhouse gas emissions are currently produced each year. Excess emissions from human activity have already warmed the planet by 1.1 degrees, and this is increasing the frequency of extreme weather events such as floods, such as droughts, that disrupt both the commodity markets that we cover and the wider global economy. The world took a step forward in 2015 at the COP21 meeting in Paris, with countries agreeing to reduce greenhouse gas emissions uh, to try to keep temperature increases well, well below 2 degrees with the aim of limiting the, the worst effects of future climate change. But in spite of this, and we agree with the UN here, um, while we've seen plenty of emission reduction announcements, we've seen over 70 countries pledging their zero targets, we've seen very little in the way of real decarbonisation action. And as a result, global emissions are still rising. And this is what makes you know, the COP26 meeting in Glasgow a pivotal one. We're simply running out of time. As the latest IPCC report makes clear, immediate major decarbonisation action is needed to keep the prospect of a 1.5 degree pathway alive. With looking at you know, a reduction of global emissions of around 50% just in the next eight years. To get back on track then, we'd be looking for COP26 to deliver raised ambition. So countries not just increasing, but rapidly accelerating climate reduction pledges. We're looking for detailed policy, so concrete actions of how these targets will be achieved. And importantly, finance to support the transition, especially in developing countries that are less able to make the investments needed to decarbonise. Collaboration will really be key to achieving all of this, and it could be made more difficult. You know, with the pandemic, we're seeing some key leaders not attending. You know, there's an absence of leaders from China and from Russia. Okay, but what does this tell us about collaboration? Is it happening? Yeah, good question. I think we're seeing pockets of it. Certainly the, the change in leadership in the US has brought the US more to the, the party and we've seen them campaigning and doing a lot of behind the scenes meetings ahead of COP. 
um, they themselves have made progress. We're seeing the EU push their plans forward. Um, but it still seems more like a regional or local view. So we're not seeing that cross collaboration. Um, that being said, there is, you know, signs of promise. China, for example, has come out with pledges recently. Um, and I know Wan Ling's been looking at that. So Wan Ling, you're based in, in China, you're based in Beijing. Can you give us the perspective from China? How serious is Beijing about achieving its climate pledges? Uh, thanks, Jumala. I, I, I would say Chinese government is very, very serious in terms of uh, carbon peak by 2030 and the carbon neutral by 2060. And uh, China has set this as the like uh, state strategy. And uh, uh, no matter uh, no matter Mr. Xi attend like COP meeting or not, this won't change Chinese government's like a strategy towards carbon peak and a carbon neutral at all. And uh, I, I would say, uh, actually, for some industries like the industry I look at, aluminium, it sounds uh, likely that uh, China may, or aluminium industry may achieve carbon peak before 2030. Okay, that's really interesting because aluminium is obviously one of the you know highest emitting industries. So what you're saying is that in some industries, we're actually going to see the peak earlier. Yes. And uh, actually, uh, Chinese government has issued a serious plan to achieve kind of carbon peak. Uh, 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 as you know, China, you know, uh, announced that it will issue like a one plus N policies to achieve carbon peak and a carbon neutral. And a one basically means a carbon peak by 2030 and a carbon neutral by 2060. And means the detailed measures China is going to implement to achieve the targets. In, in achieving these targets, I would say most important things for this is to achieve kind of uh, the green production from a pro, uh, from the production side for energy intensive uh, uh, commodities such as steel, aluminium. This is very important, and also like uh, green transportation or electrification in the road transport is another important uh, way China is going to achieve carbon peak and carbon neutral, and also. China has announced that it will largely develop renewable energy such as solar power, wind power, and also uh, nuclear power in future. Try use uh, all kinds of methods to achieve uh, carbon peak by 2030 and carbon neutral by 2060. Uh, thanks, uh, Wanling. That, that's really interesting. So the one plus N policy then, is, the N is uh, signifying the number of policies that China has domestically in order to reach that target that it has set itself. Yeah, and uh, just uh, very recently, uh, State Council has issued uh, uh, like uh, the policy, which is called initiatives to achieve carbon peak by 2030. It will it actually involves uh, quite a lot of industries such as uh, steel, non-fresh metals, and uh, also like uh, road transport, almost everything. This policy is a bit uh, detailed. And uh, obviously Chinese government's implementation in terms of policy is very efficient. It is, um, it is a bit unlike some other countries. Um, and uh, so Chinese government will implement this policy step by step. Thanks, Wanling. 
Um, Sarah, this is probably a good point to come back to you. So we've heard from Wan Ling that China is setting out a, lot, a number of domestic policies that will help it get on the path to, to net zero by 2060. Um, can you say something about you know, the emissions gap report, we talked about that at, at a high level. We said there's still a gap. What does that actually mean for commodities in other countries of the world? I think, you know, to start with, it's really thinking about where we are today. So depending on where you are in the world, you may already feel as though there's a lot of pressure on industry to decarbonize. But as our analysis and the UN emissions gap report points out, you know, we're barely scratching the surface. So that pressure to decarbonize, to change, to switch to renewables will only get greater. Um, and while there might not be a, a big concerted announcement coming out of COP, we, we will see, we are already seeing countries pushing forward uh, pledges and putting in place policy to support that. So the main takeaway for commodities is then, you know, things are moving faster and you'll need to change quicker than perhaps we'd have seen uh, a year ago. Okay, great. So big challenges uh, ahead in terms of, you know, we're at the tip of the iceberg, a lot more needs to be done. Um, so Frank, um, how can we get there? How can we get to the 1.5 degree pathway? Uh, thanks, Yumana. Um, I mean, as, as Sarah and have already mentioned, obviously it's governments. Governments play a very important role in achieving that. But I will also talk about uh, markets. So for, for governments, I mean, they, they have a mix of policies available and they will vary. The mix will vary uh, across countries. Uh, we have carbon pricing, we have uh, emission trading schemes, we have taxation, we have financial incentives and we have regulations. And then what is the right uh, policy to achieve commitments, to achieve these uh, pledges uh, will depend on country circumstances. Uh, financial incentives, uh, that's that could be tax breaks, it could be subsidies, it could be higher taxes. Um, that might be a little bit constrained now coming out of COVID with many governments having budget uh, challenges. Uh, so um, the room for maneuver might be limited. But what is as important as the mix of policies is actually the uh, stability of that policy environment so that businesses, especially in the commodities industry, which are so capital intensive and where uh, big investments have to be made, uh, they, they need some certainty what has to be done by when, what are the targets, what is the regulatory environment, is it stable, what's the tax policies. And as we see already, uh, or as we've just recently seen again in Europe and elsewhere with the energy crisis, uh, that stability is probably elusive and will remain so uh, forever. So I think that is a big, big challenge for governments uh, to offer that stability, which is really required. Uh, countries, as uh, Sarah also mentioned at the beginning, uh, countries also need to help each other. The collaboration has to be uh, more rich of the rich countries helping the developing and emerging economies deal with the challenges. And I think we will, uh, I don't think we will see more of that at COP26, but probably we will need more than what has been uh, offered so far. But let me talk about the markets. And uh, I think uh, the, the, the financial markets will play a key role in the future, driving that change. And that is about, uh, and we see that at COP26, it's the first COP uh, where um, major players have uh, come together now on center stage uh, and they they launched this Glasgow Financial Alliance for net zero uh, where you have banks insurers uh, asset managers other players in the financial market saying we will play our role in helping the real economy uh, transition to net zero and I think that's 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 the beginning I mean there has been a lot of activity in the financial markets over the recent uh, few years uh, ESG investment is really uh, 
really prominent now, but it's still just the beginning. It's, it's uh, growing really rapidly, but in terms of share in the global economy, uh, global financial markets, it's still small. But we will see, uh, I, I'm con convinced uh, we will see the ca capital markets uh, playing an increasing role in driving businesses, and in particular, capital intensive businesses, which rely on external funding to drive to, to, to net zero or lower emissions at least. Thanks, Frank. But I think what I'm hearing from you is that while markets and finance is going to be a key driver, it's not happening yet. I mean, you can read a number of reports where you find that actually people are still getting funding for fossil fuel projects. And COP president Alok Sharma has said that if we are serious about 1.5 degrees, then Glasgow must be the COP that consigns coal-fired power to history. Is that happening? Um, I think it's a nice ambition. I don't think that will happen at COP26. It might happen at later COPs. Uh, as I said, uh, progress and an activity has been absolutely huge over the last few years, but we're not quite there yet that it has become mainstream. Uh, just as an example, um, many of the big sovereign wealth funds are still heavily invested in fossil fuels. And then you would need changes at that level uh, to really uh, meet, meet, meet his, his ambition. So I don't think we're quite there yet, uh, but we, we, we might be going there rather quickly. Okay, thanks. Um, so we're hearing finance is not there yet. The other channel that Frank talked about was governments. And in particular, you know, he spoke about carbon pricing as a key driver to net zero. Sarah, I know you've done a lot of work on 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 carbon pricing. What's your view on how how high carbon prices need to be to incentivize this green transition? It's a very good question. Um, before we talk about specific price levels, it's useful to take a step back and ask why they're needed in the first place. And that's simply that for the majority of cases, green technologies are more expensive than the conventional, uh, more polluting technologies used today. So carbon prices then are a key tool uh, being used by policymakers to incentivize the switch you know, by charging for the pollution that the technology we use today creates, it's looking to equalise the, the costs of green technology and make that decision an, an economically uh, viable one. Carbon prices, carbon pricing schemes today cover just around 20% of global greenhouse gas emissions, though, with an average price of $3 per tonne. And Jumana, you asked how high carbon prices need to be, uh, clearly much higher than this. Europe is at the forefront of carbon pricing, and we've been doing a lot of work in this region looking at the policy announcements, the climate commitments, to see how carbon prices in that region will develop. And we've done this through an abatement curve, it's, which is really just looking at you know, what technologies need to be used to, to get to those targets and what price then needs to be applied to incentivize it. And we're looking at around $200 per tonne uh, by the end of the decade. So you know, much higher than we see today, certainly much higher than the global average of $3 a tonne. Um, and while these price levels may seem scary, you know, Europe's not alone. There is growing consensus that carbon prices will need to be more widely adopted by different countries to achieve climate goals. The IMF, G20 are throwing their support behind it. Um, it will be a key topic at COP. We don't think there's necessarily sufficient momentum for a new global carbon price framework, but we do expect you know, more countries to, to be coming forward with plans to implement it. And this is important for commodities. You know, Most commodities are highly energy intensive and they're going to be bearing the brunt of this cost inflation, whether it's through uh, carbon pricing applied to your conventional technologies 
or whether it's uh, cost inflation from switching to green technologies. So people really need to be looking at their production routes, at their supply chains to see where this carbon price risk exists. Thanks, Sarah. That is quite scary, actually, if you think about it. Uh, $200 for European carbon prices by 2030. Um, you know, I wonder if the, the industry is prepared. But let me move on to find out about uh, carbon pricing in, in China. Wanling, can you give us a perspective on that, please? Uh, thanks, Jumana. Yes, China actually introduced the carbon trading from uh, July this year. And at the moment, the carbon price is just about like uh, 40 RMB. It's about like uh, six or seven US dollars per ton. It is pretty low at the moment. Similar to the rest of the world or other countries, China actually would like to give majority of the free allowance for carbon, for carbon emission at the beginning, but would like to gradually reduce the, the free allowance and uh, more and more like uh, quota will be uh, will be bought from the market. That means the carbon prices in China would go higher and higher in future, in particular after 2025. This is a kind of general feedback we collect from China. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. So prices are still low now, but, you know, the system's just been introduced. And over time, as it gets tighter, we expect to see rising prices. Wanling, is that fair? Yes. Yeah, great. Thank you so much. So I think what we've heard um, from our speakers today um, in terms of a sum up is going back to the COP26 goals on collaboration. We're hearing that change is already underway. We're already seeing the biggest emitters, China, US and Europe, announce policies. So things are moving. Non-attendance of these key countries, China and Russia, makes big announcements at COP26 unlikely in our view. Um, but that doesn't matter because change is happening. Collaboration requires global carbon prices, um, but we don't expect to see a big announcement around carbon prices at COP either. On mitigation, uh, we've heard from Sarah that businesses really need to prepare for much higher carbon prices, $200 by 2030 in Europe is what we expect. And we heard from, from Frank that businesses want policy certainty, but actually that might remain elusive. Businesses may also want support from governments in terms of financial um, aid, but that could be difficult um, for governments uh, when, when, when their debt levels are high. If we think about finance, financial markets are to play a big role. We heard from Frank in particular for the mining metals industry, fertilizer industry, which is very capital intensive. But we're not seeing that big role yet. It's only just um, kicking off. And richer countries are going to have to step in um, with efforts to support emerging and, and developing countries in the pathway to net zero. On adaptation, we've heard CR's use base case is that we're, we're on a three degrees world, three degrees trajectory, and extreme weather events are already occurring and they will increasingly affect commodity markets. So that's something that we need to invest in, in the adaptation side. Those are our key takeaways. Thank you very much for joining our podcast, The Big Questions. And thank you very much to my speakers today.